as you pass There are signboards on the windows Saying, wait here, second class And to me, the whir and thunder Cluck of running gear Seems to be forever saying, saying Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here I wonder what Henry would make of me walking along the dusty track in his footprints. Perhaps he would simply ask, did you not read what I wrote? Enough warning flowed from Henry's pen for anyone to know that this trek is one to be avoided. It's not glorious and grand and free to be on the track, Henry wrote. Then again, he did follow that sentence with the words, try it. I am trying it. And, like Henry, I am hating it. I expect that Henry would be surprised and more than a little amused that somebody would be inspired to go to all of this trouble in honour of him. Dr. Gregory Bryan just shared an excerpt from his book, To Hell in High Water, wherein he chronicles his and his brother Barry's 450-kilometre journey, retracing Henry Lawson's tramp from Burke to Hungerford and back again. It is a delight to welcome Barry, better known as Baz, to the Henry Lawson's Crumbs podcast to talk with Dr. Brian and me today about his experiences on the track. Welcome, Dr. Brian, and a special welcome to you, Baz. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Amory. Terrific to be here. I'm glad you invited me along. Thank you. So to begin today, I want to make sure I have some things straight. Uh, You both have walked close to 800 kilometers across desert plains and through thigh-high swamps. You've trudged through gooey, sucking floodplain mud and across soft, shifting sands and rock-hard, sun-parched clays. You've suffered in temperatures in the mid-40s and slept out at night only to awake in the morning to discover the contents of your water bottles had frozen overnight. All of this following in the footsteps of Henry Lawson. So the question to start today's conversation uh, is quite simple. Why? Okay, so Amory, thanks for the reminder of some of those t- torturous hardships we went through. <laughs> you try to forget. Uh, look, the short answer uh, for me, at least, is because Greg asked me to. Greg had already been. You said about eight hundred kilometres. Well, Greg had already. Greg's actually over a thousand because Greg had already been out there um, before. And what I specifically mean by out there is that Greg had already redu- um, retraced some of Lawson's footsteps in a previous trek. He'd already been to what Australia literally and mythically referred to as the outback and the back of Burke, um, which means anywhere remote, isolated, cut off from so-called civilization. And although I had certainly spent time in different parts of Australia's outback, um, I knew this would be something new, interesting and challenging. Uh, Once out there, I loved it. I genuinely threw myself into it, despite the sometimes horrible hardships and deprivations that we endured. Um, I see Greg smiling when I said I loved it. I'm sure there were plenty of times when I, I didn't love it, but my, my overall recollections are that I, at least initially, the first week, threw myself into it, loved it, really enjoyed being out there. So, yeah, the short answer is because Greg asked me to. And even knowing now how harsh and horrible it can be out there, um, if he asked me again, I wouldn't hesitate. Yeah, I remember a reporter asked us one time on the way back, Baz, from uh, Hungerford mm. back to Burke, asked a similar question. And yep. I recall that that was essentially your same answer at the time, was that you were yep. there 
uh, to support me, you know, which is obviously something that I uh, greatly appreciate. And for me, it was just one of those things at some point in high school, I had learned that Henry Lawson had, had made these outback walks and that his writing had been influenced by it, by, by the walks. And so it was just something that uh, as an ignorant schoolboy, I decided that one day I would like to do. That's what eventually led me to be out there. And I was doing it because I, I wanted to have an increased understanding of uh, Henry Lawson's writing and the increased appreciation of the writing by doing the things that we have done walking in Henry's footsteps I feel certainly that uh, my understanding and, and appreciation of the work is much greater than it previously was. And I hope we get to talk about that a little bit in more detail. Baz, how did you become introduced to Lawson? I mean you know the idea of these walks was in support of me, but uh, do you have early recollections of uh, Henry Lawson at school or at home, or how did you first meet Henry Lawson? Yeah, my earliest recollections and introductions to Lawson certainly weren't as positive as your memories of yours are, um, and I've tried to sort of um, work out why that was, and I think perhaps you had the the teachers made Lawson come alive for you, whereas for me, you know, we were really active kids and a lot of Lawson's works are, you, you wouldn't actually call them action-packed stories, they're more, you know, vignettes because he had this wonderful power of observation. So, you know, we were active outdoors kids. We loved playing sport. So, look, to be perfectly honest, I've got a confession to make and, and that is that my first impressions of Lawson were that it was quite uninspiring. And, again, it's because they were... You know, if you think of stragglers, for example, we've got a, a a bloke just sitting there describing what he saw. Well, you know, for a, for a really active teenage boy or a young boy, where's where's the excitement? Where's the action? So, I don't remember it with any great enthusiasm. I was a, probably bored in a, sitting in the walls of a classroom, didn't want to be there. And I think also, again, on reflection, that developing a love of Lawson. And his intricate and intimate powers of observation, his brilliant use of description prose to set a scene and paint a picture requires a certain maturity, a patience, a commitment, an ability to reflect that I simply didn't have as a boy. Greg was quieter than me. He was more reflective, um, perhaps even more serious than I was. He's certainly more even-tempered even now than I am. So I will laugh, cry, scream, vocalise disappointment, disgust, excitement, whereas Greg is perhaps um, more observational, reflective and accepting. So perhaps he was intellectually capable and mature at a young age to appreciate Lawson, and i got to admit I certainly wasn't. Another interesting reflection I've had about my, my, on myself is that at that young age I also didn't really know our father, certainly not as I grew to know him, um, grew to understand him, appreciate him and love him as I was able to do in later years. And the reason why the reference to Dad, I think, is relevant is that the life of Lawson it was also the life of our father, tramping in the outback, shearing sheds, mateship, hard drinking, fighting, hard physical labour, unionism, the toughness of the Australian man that many of us still aspire to but fall way short of. So 
I suspect that Dad's rural Australia of the 40s and 50s wasn't significantly different to Lawson's of the 1890s. Um, so in reading and understanding Lawson, I found myself understanding Dad more. The characters, the knockabouts, the hardships, etc., that Lawson wrote about would have been very similar to those that Dad experienced. So it wasn't really until Greg invited me to join him in his reenactment of Lawson's Tramp from Burke to Hungerford and back in the height of the Australian summer that I really got to know Lawson and fall in love with uh, Lawson the man as well as the writer, which we'll talk about later on. So as well as having Greg to thank for um, inviting me to share the beauty and the pain of the outback with him, I've also got Greg to thank for really introducing me to Henry Lawson and his writing because um, at that stage of my life um, as an adult as, as opposed to a cooped-up, restless boy, I was, I was ready. I suppose I was ready and uh, able to commit the, the time, the patience, etc. that I think Lawson's, uh, an appreciation of Lawson requires. Wow. We often have experiences for some reason when we're ready for them. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I love that perspective on, on your really harrowing experience. Yeah, Baz mentioned stragglers at one point in that response. And I, I had talked about the fact that I was out there to get a greater understanding of Henry Lawson's work. And one of the lines that always sticks with me from stragglers is, to live you must walk, to cease walking is to die. And that certainly was the case when we were out there in 47 degree heat. You can't just stop wherever you want to stop. As far as I understand it, it was January 2011. And as you mentioned, right, it was remote, off, off, separated from civilization. This was incredibly trying times. But despite that, in To Hell and High Water, Dr. Brian comments that the night of day 14 of your 15-day journey was really special. And he wrote, for me... These few hours tonight are the best hours of the entire journey. Sharing laughs with two great mates, listening to Henry, sitting around a campfire in the Aussie bush. If I die now, I go happy. And I'm curious, now nearly or over a decade later, are there any lasting memories from that experience of walking in the outback that have a special place? Uh, many, many, many happy memories, and um, I, I've, I've jotted down a number of them. But even I've reread Greg's book this, this week in preparation for this podcast, and uh, so many other wonderful memories have come flooding back. Uh, and so I really, I'm really pleased. I committed to reading the book again. For goodness knows what time, how many times I've read it, but uh, I, I love it every single time I read it. Yeah. So, so some of the things I've got on my list: um, the characters that we met, fantastic literally salt of the earth people you know we were, we were you know we we're imposters really because we've got the ability to come and go and have a hot shower and and look back now and people think geez what you did was fantastic but those people out there are living that every day and uh, that's incredible incredible so some wonderful characters you know uh john stevenson greg talks about in the book um we stayed at his wonderful warrior's um station that he's managing he went out of his way one day to deliver us frozen peaches and ice cream uh, in you know, 35 degree heat. That was, as Greg describes him, angelic. Tony Marsh with the steak, the beers, the shower, 
um, a bed. Uh, Terry Bates and his hilarious stories uh, <laughs> of caravans passing through floodwaters. The wild pig hunters, the roost shooters, the farmers that inevitably stopped and said g'day and told us how mad they thought we were. Um, <laughs> kids driving the truck, um, Mick Fisher's sons, and, you know, they, they looked like kids and we were stunned that here they were driving a truck, pulling a trailer, and when, you know, when we asked them how old they were and if they could see the look of astonishment in our eyes, they said, yeah, been driving since I was eight, as if, you know, it's per perfectly normal. Um <laughs> I met a, one guy uh, who stopped, um, introduced himself, his name was Curly, and he couldn't help but see I was looking at his bald head at the time um, and he could see that I was humoured by the nickname and he said to me, <laughs> yeah, it's an old nickname. Um, <laughs> that sort of Aussie humour was fantastic. Uh, the, the, the day, oh, you know, being offered a ride with only 5Ks to go after walking 450Ks, <laughs> Just fantastic. Another time that Greg talks about in the book when he was, uh, you know, in his recollection, close to death, lying exhausted, and I doused him with water and I nearly drowned him. And, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I remember thinking how embarrassing it would be to tell people that he'd actually <laughs> drowned out there. Uh, the, wildlife, the wildlife was really special. The bird life, we were blessed in some ways by the Queensland rains, the Queensland waters, the Queensland floods that had flowed through. And so bird life was prolific, as was animal life. So uh, goats, foxes, pigs, kangaroos, emus, snakes, lizards, everything that Greg talks about. And in the book, and I think, you know, looking at it now, it's an outback garden of Eden, not the lush, luxuriant greenery that people might think of when they picture Eden, but certainly it was an outback Eden. Um, beautiful country, magnificent colours. Burke and the Antibula Cemetery was fascinating to again live out, to look and see, to get an insight into the way people lived and unfortunately died out there was really quite moving. Uh, Yantabula itself, the ghost town, to think that people did live there once and for whatever reason, probably when things like the Cordial Factory closed down or when a severe drought hit, they, they up and left um, and literally left it as, as it was. Warrigo Hotel at Ford's Bridge and the memories of being there, the Royal Mail Hotel at Hungerford, uh, the hot bath and the big steak in the pub once we'd finished. So these are all wonderful memories. But um, I know it's a really long answer, Anne-Marie, but if I had to pin myself down to one, I'd agree with Greg. When I'm, when I'm walking with Greg and we've done a number of walks, uh, another couple of big walks since then, it's just sitting around at night time, reflecting, talking, sharing, in this case, um, reading Lawson. Greg in his book wrote Listening to Henry, um, which is interesting, not listening to Baz talk, it was listening to Henry. So that came alive for Greg, which, which is lovely. And I, and I remember now, then and now reflecting, I'm sensing that Greg on that night was in heaven. You know, he said if he died that night, he dies happy. Well, I remember, you know, reading and we've got this beautiful camaraderie and mateship amongst the group and the fires burning and you've got that beautiful glow of a campfire where you can only sort of just see each other's faces. And I remember thinking that, yeah, Greg was in a really happy place. And the other thing you do at the campfire at night is you reflect and you just feel satisfied on a, a day really well lived, you know, as hard as it might have been. You, you, you just, you're just so grateful that you've lived that experience. And for me, and I, I guess a part of the reason why that particular night is, uh, was, was so significant and, and such a happy night was because 
it was only really only on that night that I could do those things that Baz just talked about because all of the other nights I was just so exhausted and feeling somewhat hopeless because of all that still lay ahead of me. And yet that was the last night. And so I knew that what lay ahead of me was only only one more day. And so I could do some of that reflecting and um, enjoy it in ways that I otherwise previously hadn't been able to do on, on, the, on the other nights. And so, um, yeah, that was significant to me. But I also agree with Baz about the Outback characters because... It may have been 2011, but they're the same characters that uh, Henry met in 1892 and 1893. So they haven't changed. They're still out there. It's easy to understand how somebody can write a good story with those characters as Henry did because um, they are stories and storytellers um, in themselves. So when we were out there on the track, Baz, I remember the. I remember one night. I'm not sure what night it was, um, but you you saying that your appreciation for Henry Lawson as a man and as a writer was increased. What did you mean by that? As a man and as a writer, I think it's because I, in a very very small way, shared some of his hardships. Like you said, I'd met some of the people that he'd met. I'd been on the track that he'd been on, etc. cetera. Uh, I certainly grew to understand his writing more. So by being out there and meeting those characters, his writing came alive for me. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, when I was a, a, a boy, I was uninterested, maybe even bored by some of it. But so as a teacher now, I really try to make whatever I'm teaching come alive because I remember very distinctly how dull it can be being in a classroom. So for me, I, that shared, that lived experience made it come alive for sure. I understood his challenges better. I understood his dark times, um, his sense of mateship, his love of Australia um, certainly came even more real for me. And my other reflection is, you know, our world is just its just so rush, rush, rush. Everything we're doing is in a hurry. We're always running late for things. We don't take time. So to, to walk is obviously slower paced. When you're walking as opposed to rushing around all the time, you, you see things, you notice things. You're more likely to stop and study things. You're more likely to reflect on what you're seeing and perhaps even to record your observations as, as we both did, your reflections, your thoughts and feelings. So in short, you feel more like Henry felt, the Henry of the 1890s because you're doing what he did. He observed, he recorded, he laughed, he cried, he you know felt discomfort, all that sort of stuff. So as a result, I grow to uh, better know him, to understand him and appreciate him. And going back to my reference of um, walking as opposed to rush, 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 even that distinction between um, Lawson's Australia and Patterson's Australia, you know, you made the observation that others have made that Lawson's Australia was an Australia on foot as opposed to Patterson's on horseback. And even that distinction, you see the the countryside differently, more slowly, etc. As Lawson, you know, has Jack Ellis saying of, about Walter Head in Babies in the Bush, there was something of sympathy between us. I can't explain what it was. It seemed as though it were an understand, understood thing between us that we understood each other. He sometimes said things to me which would have needed a deal of explanation, so I thought, had he said them to any other of the party. He'd often, 
after brooding a long while, start a sentence and break off with, you know, Jack, and somehow I understood without being able to explain why. And also in an old mate of your father's, the old man never appeared the least surprised at anything he said or did. They understood each other so well. So I think those couple of extracts encapsulate what I was saying. I just grew to understand Lawson more so in doing so, appreciate him more. I find it interesting because, Dr. Brian, in your book, you also wrote that, quote, as a result of that growing appreciation, the bond that I share with Baz is even stronger. So I'm wondering if you might just comment briefly on what you meant by that. Well, I think Baz has certainly just touched on a lot of it, right, is that we know things that most people don't know because they haven't done what we've done. And so we just sort of have a, a sometimes spoken but often unspoken bond of that shared experience, those shared experiences. So that's, that's a part of it. But another part of it is to do with the assistance that Baz provided because the fact is if Baz wasn't there, I'd be still out there. My bones would be bleached by the sun by now, but I would still be lying there somewhere. And I think that that's a huge part of it is um, the assistance that Baz provided just by his support and just by being sometimes miles out in front of me and some on some distant rise where I could see him occasionally looking back and, and uh, seeing if I was coming along. So those sorts of things, the encouragement he provided for me. You know, we, we spoke, uh, we talked one day, Anne-Marie, in one of our earlier episodes, we talked about the Peter McLaughlin stories. And in the story of Gentleman Once, Peter McLaughlin is telling that story to the people that are with him. And he says, I don't hold that a man's salvation is always in his own hands. I've seen mates pull mates out of hell too often to think that. And the reality is, it's as simple as that, is that Baz, as my mate and as my brother, pulled me out of and even through hell um, to help me to realize that dream that I had to walk from Burke to Hungerford and somehow to turn around and walk all the way back to Burke. The relationship between your suffering and your shared suffering, both of yours, but Baz, yeah, your your ability to pull, I, what is it, mate, a mate pulls a mate out of hell, um, is comes out into hell and high water. And it was incredible to see and read the bond develop up around this shared suffering. And I'm wondering, I, you've already commented on it a little bit, if, if either of you would want to add to what extent this experience of suffering and its relationship to mateship has enriched your understanding of this aspect of Lawson's writing. Now, Greg, you already talked about the Peter McLaughlin stories, but I'm wondering if there are other examples or anything you want to add. Yeah, Greg and I can only talk from an Australian perspective. I suppose Greg also has a Canadian perspective now, but it's it's something um, intrinsic. It's in our, the DNA of Australian people, particularly maybe rural people, I'm not sure about that, but 
you know, Greg and I have witnessed many, many times over decades where Australians in hardship have been supported by people without even, there's just no question, people just drop everything and, and go and help. And I'd like to think that's universal, but I, 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 maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But certainly in Australia we've got our, you know, fires and floods and famines and droughts and and then the modern um, the modern curses that inflict people. And yeah, I just think it's a it's a, a wonderful part of who Australians are that we are prepared to put others first and to and make sure our mates okay. Our mate could be our mum, our sister, our brother, our sometimes even just a stranger in the street. You know, as, as Lawson observed, but we certainly we get a lot of. Um, Inspiration and example, for, for at least in, in our case, from our own parents. You know the things that we saw our parents do, and in Mum's case, still do for people who just need a hand. And and I remember as as boys, you know, in their own subtle way, that was um, expected of us as well. So we witnessed. I remember the the, the, the fires of uh, 1983, um, the terrible Ash Wednesday fires, which in which were in our area of Australia, in fact. Uh, even of South Australia, uh, Dad going off to do what he could, whether it was to hold a hose or whether it was to deliver the sandwich that Mum had made, whatever it was. And as a as a young lad, I've been really impressed by that. And in later years, Mum and Dad visiting um, a handicapped neighbour. When Greg and I would be out on the road with Dad ferreting, if Dad saw someone walking, sort of a modern day swaggy perhaps or a hitchhiker, Dad would always stop to see if they needed a lift. So even now, when I'm driving through a, a modern day city and uh, Darcy will say, Dad, don't stop because I just can't help but stop and see if someone wants to ride to the airport or, you know, whatever else it might be. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to think it's uh, universal. I'd like to think it's um, in our DNA, but perhaps I can't, I can't hide from the fact it's part of our upbringing as well in our case. It was a wonderful example that we were, Greg and I were provided with. Yeah, and I think, um, I think that that yeah. suffering is a necessary uh, it's a necessary part of the refinement of mateship like i'm not sure how how strong mateship is in the absence of suffering mm-hmm. i think it's perhaps mm-hmm. friendship because yeah. i think that uh, it's it's pretty easy to be in the company of somebody when all is going well and there are no struggles but I think that uh, friendship becomes mateship when it is required um, to provide some assistance uh, in, in all sorts of different ways, physical ways, emotional ways, financial ways, whatever it might be. I think that that's a real refining process that, uh, that strengthens a bond. And as I say, I'm, taking, I'm making a very distinct difference between friendship and mateship. And I think that that's the way that Henry Lawson understood a difference as well. That's a good point. It's certainly about the shared hardships and helping each other through it, for sure. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, wonderfully, um, the, the humour that you find in, in those shared hardships too, even when, you, even when you're not winning, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And that's certainly true of Henry Lawson, right? Lots of that dark humour um, that he saw uh in the outback characters that he portrayed yeah i I remember i remember talking about suffering i remember like you said it'd be embarrassing if you had drowned me out there i also remember very early on um a time that i was 
exhausted and sitting in the middle of the road of the track and I, and I said something to the effect of if a car comes along, I'm not moving. And yeah. you took that to mean because you said to me in response, yeah, he can go around. And I said, <laughs> no, he can just go straight <laughs> over the top. That was my that was my preferred option at that stage was that he just drive right over the top of me rather than yeah. to go around me. So I mean, there's some of that dark humour, although it wasn't very funny to me at the time. And, no, you're right. And sorry, Amory. And I'm reading your book again this week, Greg. There were plenty of times when I was laughing to myself. You know, just some of the little comments that maybe even other people wouldn't necessarily find funny. But again, it's that shared mutual understanding that that I found really lovely to reflect on and laugh about again. Getting tangled in a barbed wire fence, for example, trying to go to the toilet. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, as an outsider, I found the book delightful in its own right. And I just want to make sure I have this straight, though. The, the, the journey that you chronicled from 2011 in this book, you've since, or in maybe the year after, July 2012, you returned to Burke. So you are both gluttons for punishment, but this time, uh, as far as I understand it, you went from Burke, from Burke to to Raleigh, Shearing Shed, and then back. So how did this second walk differ from the first, if at all? Well, yeah. So just to be clear, so uh, Henry Lawson did these two outback walks from Burke to Hungerford and back, but then he also that was after Christmas in eighteen ninety two. But prior to Christmas in 1892, he had walked from um, from Burke to Turali Shearing Shed and then back to Burke, a sort of circuitous route that took in uh, Goonery and Gumbailey. So, yeah, so initially it, it was my intent to do Burke to Hungerford, which I did, and then with Baz, Burke to Hungerford and then back to Burke. And then the third walk then that I ventured out uh, and Baz was with me, was uh, this Burke to Turali and back. Uh, and so it was different. For a start, the Burke to Hungerford, we had done it in, we had done it when Henry did it, so around New Year. And so it was uh, in the at the height of summer. But uh, as you mentioned, it was, I think it was July that we did this other one, this uh, Turali one. So, I mean, the weather was different. But, I mean, that in itself uh, presented some other challenges. You talked earlier about the fact that we would wake up in the morning and our water bottles were frozen. So, I mean, that, that, that there were differences but still extremes. And I actually think that uh, in lots of ways, and because we, did, we had less support and we actually had to carry everything uh, on, our, on our backs um, the, in this Turali walk, I think in lots of ways this, the Turali walk was actually harder. But in other ways, the Burke, the the Hungerford walk was harder. So I mean, it, it was it was certainly was in no way, you know, just a, a walk in the park. So <laughs> okay. one, one of the highlights of that second walk was the Turali shearing shed, the wool shed. Uh, it's I think I just think of it as a, as one of the places that made Australia. As I recollect, I think that uh, at its height there were forty six stands. And in the, in the height of shearing season, more than 100 people were employed there as, as shearers and rouseabouts and cooks and, and, and um, all, all of those sorts of things. So, I mean, it was a, 
a really significant place in the region as a, as a center for employment. And that's why Henry and, uh, and Jim actually ended up down there. But what do you remember of the uh, Turali Woolshed, Baz? I remember it as being uh, a, a sight for sore eyes because we, you know, certainly I felt very lost, literally lost in a, a day or two leading up to it. Um, finally, one of my lovely memories is I remember uh, the day or two before we got to the woolshed, just just sitting under the tree in the sun. It was you know it's winter, so any sun was warm, but just lying under a tree, having something to eat and feeling the warmth of the sun, having a rest and drifting off to sleep. So it's funny, those some of those little highlights. But um, it, it, looking back now at Turali Woolshed, whenever I go to uh, Uluru, I say to people, every Australian should visit Uluru or Ayers Rock, as it was previously known. And I, and I just got the same sort of feeling about Turali. That's how highly I rate it. I think it's one of those outback iconic places that, you think it's really sad and wrong that so few people even know about it, let alone visit it. But but maybe the less people that visit it, the, the longer it will stay there too. Um, yeah, look, I, it's a magnificent old building, which is a funny thing to say about something which is a dilapidated ruin. But you're right, in its, in its heyday, 250,000 sheep per year were shorn there. Incredible. Yeah. And that figure is down to zero. So in its day, it was a hustling, bustling hive of um, activity, Australianness, mateship, all those things I've mentioned earlier, swearing, fighting, all that sort of stuff, but it would have been all happening. So the actual presence um, and feeling the presence of Henry and, and Jim at that shed, but also as a sort of reference earlier of, of feeling Dad there. Now, Dad probably never, ever went to Turali Station, but he would have worked in hundreds and hundreds of shearing sheds very similar. So I remember feeling that. Um, just wandering uh, wandering around, we spent a, a, a long afternoon there and felt really sad eventually that we had to leave. I, as you know, Greg, I did some writing for Australian Geographic on after returning from both of these walks, and this was an extract I wrote about um, the woolshed, if you don't mind me reading it. On the fourth day, we made it to Turali Woolshed, and although it was sad to see the once majestic building, now dilapidated ruin, this was the highlight of our trek. It was easy to imagine the hustle and bustle of a busy shearing shed in its heyday, back when 250,000 sheep per year were shorn there. It was also easy to feel the presence of Henry and Jim at Turali. We eventually, I'll be pun, that goes on to talk about uh, the end of that end of that trip, we eventually trudged back into Burke on July 10. This last day's walking was done almost entirely in driving rain, so we spent the last day cold, wet and mainly in silence. Both of us preferred to keep our misery to ourselves and not let our conversation spoil the vision of a hot bath, a hot meal and a warm bed, all of which awaited us in Burke. So, yeah, lovely memories of, of the, the woolshed and um, and just, just being there. Pick, you know, we, 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 as I said, walked around the whole shed and seeing, picked up little things like um, pieces of shears, rusted old bits of iron that would have been there, goodness knows how, you know, possibly even in, from from Henry's day, um, the, the marks on the walls that she, on the walls that shearers make to keep their tallies up, all those things are still there. Chalk, chalk notes to each other, chalk tallies. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic! I'd love to. I'd love to go there again. And the smell, Baz. Yeah, the smell is yep. what you die for. 
Yeah. I, I love now even going into shearing sheds now or, or smelling a, a sheep truck as it drives past me. I can that beautiful smell that some people turn their nose up. But you're right, even decades and decades since that was an active working shed, that smell is there. The, the lanolin in the, the lanolin in the sheep's wool, the probably the sweat, you know, it's just a magnificent smell. Yeah. And and the the shearers' quarters are still there as well. So it's yeah. not it wasn't just the wool shed, but we could even see their quarters where they lived. You know. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a remarkable place. That yeah. Probably, I mean, who knows? It might not have been half a dozen people there in the last year. Maybe oh, maybe uh, maybe not half a dozen people since we were there. Yeah. No. Look, I, I, I agree with that. It'd be very very. Infrequently visited, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that was, it was, it was, uh, you know, we, um, even though the, the road from, so called road from Burke to um, Hungerford is a so called main road, uh, and at times it's a little more than a dusty track, at least it's easily navigable. It's, uh, you, you can't get lost. Whereas the other walk, we were walking cross country, uh, across private properties, and a lot of it was map and compass, and we certainly got lost. There, there, there were plenty of times where I, I thought, not only do I not know where I am, I, I didn't know how to get to where we should be. There were no, no discernible landmarks. We, you know, there's some really wonderful references in um, Lawson's writing about mates as much as they love each other and need each other and support each other, how they get on each other's nerves and it can be a bit snappy with each other and you, you find a fine line to make sure that doesn't spill over most of the time. But uh, some of our disagreements were just on which way we should be going. <laughs> there was there was a time in the, in the trip, a trip where I was walking ahead of Greg, uh, confident that I was on the right track, and I kept checking behind me on the doctors that Greg was still coming, still coming, and after a while... He wasn't still coming. So, oh, bugger me, where's he gone now? So I had to go back and find him. And it's because uh, rather than catching up to me and saying, Baz, I think we've gone the wrong way, he's decided we're going the wrong way and headed off in a different direction. God knows how that could have ended. But the whole, the whole time I'm walking back to him, I'm cursing him. And um, anyway, as it turns out he was right, thankfully. But another time we got to... It was getting dark, and this happened a couple of times, and we, again, weren't sure where we were. So the sensible decision was made just to let's just set up camp, have something to eat, light a fire, and worry about it in the morning. And that's literally playing what's in front of you and think about tomorrow, tomorrow. And that, that particular night, I specifically remember uh, the night when we set up camp without knowing where we were or where we were going, I was also out of water. I had no water at all. <laughs> And so I was actually very worried because not only was I very thirsty, but then I was facing the prospect of at least whatever, six or eight or ten hours until I could get some water. But Baz, going back to this idea of mateship and suffering, uh, Baz actually had some water left and uh, he gave me a good amount of his water. And uh, otherwise, I'm, again, I'm not sure that I would be here today because uh, I, I literally had no water left. And, and Baz gave me water to get me through the night and the next morning until we got some. We got to a property uh, and we got some water from their taps. Yeah, and Baz, that's another thing I was struck by, was your looking over your shoulder uh, out for Greg. 
And I think that the book, in addition to just being a great synthesis of suffering and Lawson's poetry and what that what an experience can do to deepen an understanding of literature, I think it is a shining testimony to mateship. And it uh, it was fabulous to meet you today and through this work um, to meet such a fine character, you know, and I'm sure if somebody ran into you in the outbook as you listed off the folks you met, I'm sure that they would mention Baz Bryan. So thank you. Uh, if they saw me on a good day, they might. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks very much, Amory. Before yeah. we do finish, I'd actually be interested, and I think some of our listeners would be interested in some of your favourite uh, Lawson works, uh, some some uh, prose or some poetry that you particularly enjoy or are moved by. So what, what are some of your favourites and why are they your favourites? Yeah, so um, first of all with poetry, um, I'm always struck by the, the pathos of, um, of, of Lawson's writing and so uh, past caring uh, is, is wonderful. I love the fact it's been put to music. Um, was usually with some accompanying images about particularly women and hardships in the outback and or not just in Australia but all around the world. Christ of the Never Never, sorry, Christ of the Never, I beg your pardon, um, which again, Christ of the Never, which I think you'd know more than me, Greg, expanded into Shall We Gather at the River or yeah. the other way around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the same with Babies in the Bush, which was a poem and a, a short story. So, um, past Karen, Christ of the Never, Babies in the Bush and Andy's Gone with Cattle, all distinctly different but some of my favourite poems. I, I love the, um, in Andy's Gone with Cattle, there's the the mourning, the longing, the disappointment, the sadness that Andy's gone but the fact that uh, someone can make people feel so good is, is inspiring and lovely. So, who now shall wear the cheerful face in times when things are blackest and who shall whistle round the place when fortune frowns her blackest? And I think that's that's a lovely description of what we all aspire to be, not only good people but um, better people for others and make other people better and happier. Um, short stories, uh, stragglers, definitely, an old mate of your father's, again, perhaps even more so since uh, Dad's passing, um, double buggy at Lays Creek. I love the romance of that, uh, particularly at the end, that this couple that have grown apart through hardships and um, broken dreams and everything else uh, suddenly reunited in a really romantic um, ending. Babies in the Bush will always be one of my favourites. A heartbreaking story. And, again, visiting Waverley Cemetery, Yantabula, Burke Cemetery, seeing how many children died and the various ways that Outback children died in those days and the huge numbers, even sometimes from the same families, same parents, is heartbreaking. That's a wonderful description of hardships but also human frailty and human weakness. It's a fantastic story. Um, the Drover's Wife, I have always have a great loyalty towards as probably one of my first and favourite um, stories. Shall We Gather at the River? Again, Peter McLaughlin making people feel better about themselves and bringing out the goodness in people. Uh, I've got you know, lots and lots of quotes here. Time permitting, I would have read extracts or excerpts I would have read, but, um, you know, there's certainly, if anyone, if any listeners have never um, read any Lawson, please read at least one of those, The Drover's Wife, Babies in the Bush, uh, Stragglers, 
Shall We Meet at the River, uh, all of those encompass what a wonderful writer uh, Lawson continues to, not was, but continues to be for, for so many people. Yeah, well, thank you. That's a that's a terrific list, Baz. It really is. Yeah, so thank you for that. And I'm sure that our listeners will enjoy either visiting or revisiting those stories and poems. But that is about all the time that we have for today, Baz. Um, so thank you so much uh, for your time and uh, sharing your recollections of our experiences in Henry's footsteps and uh and uh, your insights into Henry Lawson's writing born of those experiences. So in our next episode, we're actually going to discuss some of Henry Lawson's Burke-based works. If you enjoy our podcast, please let others know about it and invite them to consider joining the Henry Lawson Memorial and Literary Society. In closing, we again want to say thank you to Baz and express our extreme thanks to David Minier and John Schumann for permission to use musical excerpts from Schumann's Lawson album. And just a reminder that on September, on September the 2nd, 2022, John Schumann and the Vagabond crew and the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra are staging a performance at the Adelaide Festival Centre entitled Henry Lawson, A Life in Words and Music. Tickets are on sale now. Information is available on the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra website and on John Schumann's website. Thank you very much, Baz. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me and making it all come alive again for me. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. I remember, oh man, I remember The tracks that we followed are clear the jovial last nights of December The solemn first days of the year Long tramps through the clearings of the timber Short partings on platform and pier I remember, old oh man, I remember The tracks that we followed are clear